Chapter seventeen of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred. Part two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred. Part two. By Francois Rene de Chateaubriand. Chapter seventeen. London, April till September, eighteen twenty two. Sailors' games island of st pierre fac pelagis miscire probes quo cabasa laxo o muse aid me to show that i know the sea on which i now spread my sails so said six hundred years ago william the breton my fellow-countryman restored to the sea i again began to contemplate its solitudes but through the mist of my ideal world rose like severe monitors france and real events my retreat during the day when i wished to avoid my fellow-passengers was the round-top of the main-mast. My agility in climbing to it gave me the applause of the sailors. Here I seated myself in full view of the great waste of waters. The immense vault of heaven, hung as it were with azure, looked like a canvas prepared for the future creations of a great painter. The colour of the water was that of liquid glass. Through the ravines of its undulating mountains were to be seen vistas of the great ocean desert. These ever-changing water-views made me understand the comparison in scripture, where it speaks of the earth reeling like a drunken man before the lord at one moment the immense space of sea and sky appeared narrow and confined for want of a point of comparison but let a wave raise its head or curve itself into an imitation of a distant coast or a shoal of sea-dogs pass along the horizon and immediately a standard of measurement was furnished the vast extent was fully revealed when a haze rising on the pelagian surface seemed even to add to the immensity around after descending from my eyrie, as in former days from my nest in the willow, for I was perpetually reduced to a solitary life, I supped on a sea-biscuit, a lemon, and some sugar, and then lay down, either on the deck in my cloak, or below the poop in my cot. I had but to stretch out my arms to reach from my bed to my coffin. The wind drove us northwards, and we touched at the bank of Newfoundland. Some floating pieces of ice roamed through a cold, pale mist. The sons of Neptune have particular games which have been handed down to them by their predecessors. On crossing the line, one must make up one's mind to receive baptism. The same ceremonies observe under the tropics, the same at the bank of Newfoundland, and wherever it may be performed, the chief of the masquerade is always Goodman Tropic. Tropic and Hydropic are synonymous in sailors' ideas, so Goodman Tropic is always extremely portly. Even when beneath his tropics, he is clothed in all the sheepskins and furred jackets to be found on board. He crouches on the round-top, uttering roars at intervals, Every one below watches him. He begins to descend the shrouds, heavy as a bear, staggering like Silenus. On reaching the poop, he renews his roars, bounds about, seizes a bucket, fills it with salt water, and throws it over the principal man among those who have not crossed the line, or who have never gone so far north as the ice latitude. People take refuge below decks, climb on the hatchways and up the masts, and Father Tropic pursues. The game is finished by the sailors getting some money for drink. Such are the games of Amphitrite which Homer would have celebrated as he did Proteus, if old Oceanus had been thoroughly known when Ulysses lived. But at that time nothing was yet to be seen of him but his head at the columns of Hercules. His hidden body covered the world. We steered in the direction of the islands of Saint-Pierre and Miquelon in search of a new port. As we were approaching the former one morning between ten o'clock and noon, we were near going on shore, its coast loomed through the fog like a dark, shapeless mass. We cast anchor before the capital of the island, the town was not visible, but we heard the sounds on shore. 
the passengers hastened to land the superior of saint sulpice continually harassed by sea-sickness was so weak that he was obliged to be carried on shore i took a private lodging and waited till a gust of wind should drive away the fog and show me the place in which i was to live and so to speak the countenances of my hosts in this land of shadows the port and roadstead of saint pierre lie between the eastern coast of the island and a small islet called l'île aux chiens which protects them from the sea the harbour called the barachois runs deep into the land and terminates in a brackish swamp the mass of the island consists of barren promontories some detached towering steep from the shore others with a strip of level boggy land at their base the signal posts on the cape are seen from the town the governor's residence stands opposite to the landing-place where are also the church the rectory and the arsenal near this also is the house of the harbour-master and the captain of the port the only street in the town stretches along the pebbles on the beach i dined two or three times with the governor who was very obliging and polite on the glacis of the fort he cultivated a few european leguminous plants and after dinner he showed me what he called his garden a sweet and delicious perfume of the heliotrope was wafted from a small patch of beans in flower it was not borne to us by a breeze from our country but by a fierce wind from newfoundland which had no connection with the exiled plant no sympathy of recollections or pleasure this perfume not breathed by beauty not purified in its bosom not shed upon its steps this perfume removed from its clime its culture and its wonted admirers brought with it all the melancholy feelings of regret of absence and of youth from the garden we climbed up the heights and stopped at the foot of the flagstaff on the signal post the new french flag floated over our heads and like the woman in virgil we wept flentes as we looked at the sea it separated us from our native land the governor was uneasy he belonged to the fallen party he was moreover weary of this retreat fit only for a visionary like myself but a rude sojourn for a man engaged in business or one who no longer feels a master passion which makes one indifferent to the rest of the world my host inquired about the revolution i asked for news of the northwest passage he was the advance guard of the desert but he knew nothing of the eskimo and received nothing from canada except partridges one morning i had gone alone to the cap a to see the sun rising from the direction of france there a winter torrent formed a cascade whose last bound reached the sea i sat down upon a projection of the rock with my feet hanging over the waves which rolled at the base of the cliff a young sea-nymph appeared on the higher declivities of the promontory her feet were bare though it was cold as she walked over the dew her dark hair was confined in tresses by an indian muslin handkerchief wound round her head and on the top of the handkerchief she wore a bonnet in the form of a ship or a cradle made of the reeds of the country a bouquet of wild lilacs adorned her bosom which was set off by the whiteness of her bodice from time to time she stooped down to gather the leaves of an aromatic plant called by the islanders te naturel with one hand she threw the leaves into a basket which she carried in the other she perceived me without any fear she came and sat down beside me placed her basket near her on the ground and began like myself with her legs dangling over the sea to look at the sun we remained some minutes without speaking at last i took courage and said what are you gathering the season for seaweed is past she raised her large black eyes timid and bright and answered i am gathering tea she handed me her basket are you taking the tea to your father and mother my father is out fishing with guillaume what do you do in the winter on the island we weave nets and fish in the ponds by breaking holes in the ice on sundays we go to mass and vespers or we chant the canticles and then we play on the snow and watch the boys hunting white bears 
Will your father soon return? Oh, no, the captain takes the ship to Genoa with Guillaume. But Guillaume, won't he return? Oh, yes, next season on the return of the fishermen. He will bring me among his wares a striped silk corset, a muslin petticoat, and a black necklace. And you will be adorned for the wind, the mountain, and the sea. Would you wish me to send you a bodice, a petticoat, and a necklace? Oh, no. She rose, took up her basket, and darted off down a steep path along a forest of pines, singing as she went with a loud voice a canticle of the missions. Tout brûlant d'une ardeur immortelle, c'est verdir que tant mes désirs. In her descent she started numbers of those beautiful birds called aigrettes from the plumes of feathers on their heads. She seemed as if she were one of the flock. As soon as she reached the sea she sprang into a boat, spread the sail, and seated herself at the helm. She might have been taken for fortune. She disappeared. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Guillaume. The image of the young sailor on the sea in the midst of the winds changed the wild rocks of Saint-Pierre into a land of delight. L'isole di fortuna ora vedete. We passed fifteen days in the island. From its desolate coast may be seen the still wilder and more barren shores of Newfoundland. The mountains in the interior form diverging chains, the highest of which stretch towards the Bay of Rodriguez. In the valleys, granite rocks, mixed with red and greenish mica, are clothed with masses of lichens and dicranum. Several small lakes are fed by the streams which run from the Vigi, the Corval, the Pandisuc, the Cagariu, and the Tete Galante. These marshes are known by the names of the ponds of the Savoyard, of Cape Noir, of Ravenel, of Colombier, and of Cap Alegre. When the whirlwinds strike these ponds, their violence scatters and divides the shallow waters, so as to show here and there portions of the submarine meadows, which are again speedily covered over by the returning waves. The flora of Saint-Pierre is the same as that of Lapland and the Straits of Magellan. The varieties of the vegetable world decrease as the pole is approached, and at Spitsbergen there are not found more than forty species of phanerogamous plants. By changing their locality, the whole genera of plants become extinct. Some whose habitation is the icy steppes of the north become denizens of the mountains in the south. Others, which delight in the tranquil atmosphere of dense forests, decreasing in vigour and size, perish when exposed to the stormy blasts of the ocean. In Saint-Pierre, the marsh myrtle, Vacinium fuliginorum, is reduced to the state of a creeper. It will soon be buried in the dog's-bane which constitutes its soil. A travelling plant, I have taken precautions to disappear on the shores of the sea, my native soil. The slopes of the hills in Saint-Pierre are covered with Takamahakas, Diospyros, larch and spruce firs, whose shoots are used for producing an antiscorbutic beer. None of these trees grow beyond the height of a man. The ocean storm bends and prostrates them like ferns. Then, gliding under these forests of bushes, it lifts them up again, but it meets neither trunks, branches, arches, nor echoes to respond to its roar, and makes no more noise than upon a heath. These rickety woods form a striking contrast with the large forests of Newfoundland, whose neighbouring coasts lie within sight, and whose fir-trees are adorned with the silver lichen, Alectoria tricodis. The white bears seem to have hung their skins on the branches of these trees, of which many form the strange creepers. The swamps of this island of Jacques Cartier contain paths trodden by those bears, which nearly resemble the rural paths in the neighbourhood of a sheepfold. The howlings of these hungry animals are heard through the whole night, and the traveller only feels himself safe by the no less mournful sounds of the sea, whose rude and inhospitable waves become companions and friends. The northern extremity of Newfoundland reaches the latitude of Cape Charles I, in Labrador, and a few degrees higher the polar regions commence. If we only believe travellers, these regions have their charms. 
when the sun approaches the earth in the evening it seems to remain stationary and again begins to ascend instead of sinking below the horizon the mountains clothed with snow the valleys covered with white mosses on which the reindeer browse the seas alive with whales and speckled over with floating ice form a most brilliant scene illuminated at the same time by the glowing light of the west and the splendours of the aurora it is difficult to know whether one is present at the creation or the end of the world a small bird like that which sings by night in our woods warbles forth its plaintive note then love prompts the eskimo to seek his expecting companion on the rocky ice these marriages of men at the utmost bounds of the earth are neither destitute of pomp nor happiness End of chapter seventeen